Good morning, everybody. There we go. All right. So we are in Psalm chapter 23 this morning, uh, starting our next to last five-week series of the Old Testament. So we've done 80 lessons of this Essential 100. Uh, Right now we're going to be doing a five-week series on Psalms and Proverbs. Three weeks in Psalms, two weeks in Proverbs. And uh, then we jump back to the New Testament to do some more letters. We jump back to the Old Testament to do the prophets. Jump back to the New Testament to do Revelation. And then we're done. I don't know what we're going to do then, because then we'll have covered the whole Bible in two years. So, I don't know. Maybe we'll start on the Koran. No, we will not start on the Koran. That's right. We're going to go back to the Bible and do some more Bible. So, uh, five weeks in Psalms and Proverbs. And I wanted to do a little bit of an introduction to Hebrew poetry, because Hebrew poetry is a big chunk of the Old Testament. Um, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon uh, are referred to as the wisdom or poetical books in the Old Testament. And it basically just means they have a poetical structure. The, the problem is that when we look at English poetry, it sounds a lot like there once was a man from Nantucket. Right? It's okay. There's a clean version, too. It's all right. And Hebrew poetry doesn't necessarily look... You visitors are going like, oh my gosh, what did I get into today, right? Yeah, no, it's okay. I love Jesus, don't worry. Um, Hebrew poetry doesn't really look anything like that because Hebrew poetry is, is based off of com- something completely different. And here's your first blank. The common theme around Hebrew, Hebrew poetry is parallelism. And that's the relationship between the meaning, that's your blank, meaning of two lines of poetry. So in English... Something rhymes if it sounds alike, if it's phonetically similar. In Hebrew, something rhymes if it means something similar. So totally different ways of looking at uh, poetry. Now, there's a lot of different types of Hebrew poetry, and this isn't in your notes. Um, There's stuff called synonymous parallelism. You're like, yay, that sounds awesome, doesn't it? Yes. Synonymous parallelism is when the first line means about the same thing as the second line. The second line kind of expands or clarifies the meaning. There's antithetical parallelism. Okay, so synonymous is the same. Antithetical would mean different, opposite. Yeah, so the first line means something and the second line means something else. So antithetical parallelism, the example that's in Proverbs, um, the righteous do something this, the wicked does it like this, right? So opposites. There's climactic parallelism, where the second line builds on the first. There's formal parallelism, where the second line doesn't mean the same, but it's worded differently and clarifies the first. There's about 25 different types of parallelism. Those are the four that I know. Okay, So why is that important? Well, it's important to help us understand how to interpret the scripture. Because if we read a line of poetry and we see that the next line says almost exactly the same thing, this is the Bible commentating on the Bible. This is line upon line. This is precept upon precept. So we can help us understand and get a fuller, richer meaning of what this is actually talking about. Because I can say, Josh, I'd like you to stand up. And until I nodded, he, didn't, he wasn't really sure, like, Am I, is this an example? Or is this just kind of what's going on here? Josh, I'd like you to sit down. Antithetical parallelism. There it is, right? That rhymes in Hebrew. I just made a Hebrew poem. So, so when we read through the Old Testament, it's like, uh, what was that? I think I just missed it. And, and we miss a lot of poetry. We miss a lot of poetry in the Old Testament. So if you think about um, what's the word that encompasses everything that exists? Is there a word that encompasses everything that exists? It's a scientific term. 
Think big. Universe? The universe. The universe. So that word is a compound word. has two parts, right? Uni, which means what? One. Verse, which means what? It's a single spoken sentence of poetry. A verse. It's a line of poetry. So when God created the universe with a single sentence in poetry, he created everything. Poetry is important. What were Adam's first recorded words? <laughs> dang! No, it wasn't dang. It was actually, whoa, man. That's that word. No. They won't get better, I'm sorry. If you're expecting more, that's how you get it. Uh, his first recorded words in Genesis were poetry. They were. Flip over to Genesis chapter 2. Go. Genesis chapter 2. I'll show you. Genesis 2, verse 23, what does it say? Before you read what it says, look at the form of it in your Bible. Does it look differently than the text around it? How many of you shake your head up and down? Yes. How many of you shake your head left and right? No. Depends on how your Bible is formatted. Okay? If your Bible shows poetry as poetry, it will show indented a little bit. Right? And he says what? He says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. That would be what type of poetry? Synonymous. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. That would be what type of poetry? Climactic, because it's expounding upon the meaning there, right? We're explaining more and more. So you have synonymous and climactic poetry right at the beginning of the Scripture. Part of the issue with identifying poetry in the Old Testament is that we classify certain books of the Bible as poetry, and we classify other books of the Bible as non-poetry. All right? Poetry is actually found in almost every single Old Testament book of the Bible, in almost every single one. And there, there's a reason that God communicates in poetic form, and this is your blanks on your handout. Number one, it's emotional. And at all, in all of our lives, at some point, we have each been emotional, right? Amen? Yes, just a little bit, just a little bit. We can relate to it. Number two, it's beautiful. We can appreciate it. Number three, it's easy to remember. The chapter that we're talking about today was probably one of the first chapters that we as believers memorized in Scripture, Psalm 23, right? And, and it's easy to remember because it's got a form that is easy to remember. It lends itself toward memorization. And number four, I think is really important, it's easy to translate. So how many of you, how many of you know another language well other than English? If you know another language well other than English. Anybody? But if you have ever read poetry in an original language that is not English, so let's say somebody wrote some poetry in German, right? And then you translate that into English, it doesn't work very well. You know why? Because the words that rhyme in German don't necessarily rhyme in English. It really doesn't work very well. But God, when he set this thing up, rhyming with meaning, you can translate that into any language in the world, and it will work just fine. Because the meaning is what gets translated. Isn't that brilliant? It's a beautiful, beautiful model that God constructed for us here. So, several reasons there why uh, this is a brilliant choice from God to use poetry. So, now we're looking at the book of Psalms. So, Psalms has 150 chapters. It's the longest book in the Bible. How many of you know how many Psalms that David wrote? Anybody know? How many Psalms that David wrote? 
You're like, 150, right? Because he wrote all. No, he didn't write them all. He wrote about 73 of them. David wrote about 73 of them. Um, the family of Asaph wrote 12. The sons of Korah wrote 11. Solomon actually wrote two. Dude named He-Man. I'm not making this up. He-Man wrote a psalm. <laughs> Boom. Guys, we have no excuse for not singing in the choir unless we can't carry a tune. Okay? Uh, Moses even wrote one. And they were written somewhere between 1400 B.C. when Moses wrote his. He wrote Psalm 90. And 600 or 550 B.C. when Psalm 137 was written. So they were written over like eight or 900 years and collected together over time. And the Psalms were Israel's songbook, right? So before we got contemporary and had words up on the screen, there were these things in the pews called hymnals, right? And you used to pick them up and you'd have to turn to a specific page. And it was, it was archaic, right? Because then we got PowerPoint and it was great and it was good, right? <clears throat> and then PowerPoint crashed and it was not good, right? So you would turn to a page. Well, the Jews memorized the 150 psalms and they sang them. And the psalms ranged from emotionally positive, uplifting, beautiful things to I can't imagine life getting any worse and I want to like, do bad things to people now. Yeah, country, right? Yeah, this is the start of country music. Oh, wow. Oh, I'm sorry, God. I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, David gets so distraught at one point in the Psalms, he says, he's talking about his enemies, he says, break their teeth in their mouth, O God. And you're like, uh, I don't know that I've ever wanted my enemy's teeth to break, right? Because that's just, that's just mean, man, you know? I mean, that's mean. Yeah, we don't even allow that in UFC, right? I mean, that's, <laughs> that's not okay. Um, so all these different things that are going on here with the Psalms. So the key thought for today's lesson, though, is Psalm 23, is that the good shepherd, Jesus, there's your blank, Jesus is going to be a blank. Every week, Jesus is going to be a blank. All right, so Psalm 23, everybody found it? If you don't know where Psalms is, go about halfway in your Bible and hang a left a little bit, and that's about where Psalm 23 is. So the Lord, the shepherd of his people, a Psalm of David. Verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And, and we could really just stop there and just go, I shall not want. That will beat you up for a long, long, long time. I shall not want. How many of us woke up this morning and went, my goal today is not to want? Hmm. Larry, what you need, bud? I'm good in here, yeah. Thank you, sir. You made me nervous. Except for this one? I'm blessed. So we have cool air, right? I, we do not want. There we go. That was it. <laughs> he was faster to it. There we go. So when we go in the sanctuary this morning and we don't have cool air, that's right. We will not want, right? We still have padded pews and beautiful music to sing and all these sorts of things. So that's good. So we will not want. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Verse 2, he makes, here's your blank, causes me to lie down. <clears throat> How many of you have ever uh, had an illness where you were forced to lie down because of exhaustion? This had to happen. You had to stop and lie down. Anybody? Yes. This is the idea here is that, that we get ourselves so amped up, so ramped up, so wandering around all the time, busy, 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 that we don't rest. He forces us. He causes us to lie down. So where do we lie down? 
to lie down in green pastures. So what would this meant to a sheep? To lie down in green pastures. What would this meant to a sheep? Like, awesome. <laughs> Tempur-Pedic, got nothing on that, right? I mean, it is fantastic. This is it. This is great stuff. Now, one of my commentaries says, any person who knows anything about sheep, because we all know everything about sheep, right? I know anything. Knows that they will never lie down when they are hungry. Therefore, the scene here is the green pastures where the sheep have eaten their fill, and then when no longer hungry, they lie down. Oh. Okay. So the shepherd, the, the agriculturally oriented people would understand that sheep is not going to lie down. It's not the way this works. So he causes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. So I got a question for you. Um, who made the green pastures and the still waters? Jesus did, right? So he, he made it. And who did he make it for? Us and himself. Yeah, I'm good with either answer there, right? Kind of both. So, so he creates this thing for his glory, for us to enjoy, and then we scurry around as fast as we can and don't enjoy it. So what does he do? He takes us and he forces us to lie down in his green pastures and beside his still waters because he is good, right? This is what he does. He cares about us so much that he will not let us do what we want to do. That is hard. That is hard. And those of you with children know this, right? Because your children want to eat chocolate chip cookies all day. And we care enough about them not to let them do what they want to do, right? We will force them to lay down and take a nap because it is good for them to the glory of God, right? <laughs> it is, right? And, and, and we forget this as adults that it's good to rest, but it is, it is good to rest. So verse 3, he restores or brings back or restores or refreshes. The blank is repairs. He repairs my soul. Have you ever felt like your soul was just worn down? I I just, I hurt. My soul is broken. I have been taken through a place or through a set of experiences where I need repair. And he does this. It's beautiful. He leads me in the paths of righteousness. Now, several weeks ago, we talked about this Hebrew word for paths. Um, and we, we talked about lines of circumvallation. Anybody remember that? Lines of circumvallation? Awesome. I'm glad that stuck. Um, <clears throat> that was great. It's this idea when, uh, when you've got a city and an army attacks that city, they dig in in trenches around that city, right? They dig trenches around. For for their soldiers to dig into. Those trenches that are dug in are the lines of circumvallation. It's a very military term. This is not follow the yellow brick road, right? This is not that path. It is not a happy path that leads to a great place. This is warfare path. This is digging in because life is hard sometimes, and sometimes it just stinks. But guess who is there leading us through this? The Good Shepherd. That's what he does. That's what he does. So we have this idea here. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name or his glory's sake. Verse 4. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Does anybody have a different translation than that? Than shadow of death? Darkness valley. That's a good one. 
Death Valley, that's pretty good. It's place of the dead. Literally, it's place of the dead. <clears throat> so in our modern day culture, where is the place of the dead? Cemetery. Let's just make it mean, the pet cemetery. Okay, scary place, place of the dead. Place where you think somebody's going to reach up out of the ground and get you. Because it is that terrifyingly scary. Right? This place of the dead. I will fear no evil. Now, how many of you can watch a horror movie and not get scared? Are there any of those folks in the room? Albert? Who else? Really? I would, I would not have guessed that. Oh, the children are the horror. That's good. That's good. I like that. So, so my wife, <clears throat> happy anniversary, babe. I love you. 12 years today. Woohoo! It's awesome. Um, thank you. My wife and I, uh, we like to watch movies together, as you would probably gather from the constant movie references that I make in Sunday school. Um, I enjoy a good uh, zombie movie or a good uh, scary thriller movie periodically. She, however, cannot stand these. Um, we typically watch movies now that were <clears throat> old married people. Uh, I will be on the couch, she will be on the love seat, and she will have a blanket pulled up over her, and usually it's right around her neck, right? And when the scary part comes, where does the blanket go? She turtles up on me, and it's like, Jules, where'd you go? Oh, you're gone, oh, okay. So I was like, I'm, so we have DVR, right? I'm so evil. I'm like, the scary part's over, rewind. It's great. It's fantastic. And then I get, and then I get the lower Alabama, Jim. And then I, and then dang it, I know I'm in trouble. Okay, I know I'm in trouble. That was like the worst rabbit trail ever, wasn't it? All right. So verse four. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Here's what this word "evil" means, and I'll tell you the blank in a sec because I'm gonna give you a whole bunch of words. So just relax. Bad, evil, unpleasant, pain, unhappiness, misery, vicious disposition, ethically wicked person, thought, or deed, distress, injury, adversity, or wrong. And your blank is calamity. It's a very broad word. It's kind of everything that bad that could happen, right? Um, it's the most broad word in the Hebrew language for evil itself. It's just all things bad, everything negative. So I will fear nothing that falls into that category. So how in the world could we live a life where we don't fear that? You're the Lord's the shepherd, right? He's already gone before. The shepherd knows where he's going. The shepherd has been there before. The shepherd has surveyed the land. He already knows. The shepherd has already taken another flock of sheep through this. We are not the first flock of sheep he's taken through this. Okay? <laughs> he's been doing this a long time. We have a gray-bearded shepherd. He is experienced. Right? Some of you have, sit, have gone for job interviews before, and you'll be asked a question like, well, tell me about your experience with this. So let's interview God for this job. For the, God of the, for the job of the shepherd, right? So tell me about your experience as the shepherd. Well, I created the universe. <clears throat> and then I determined uh, all the laws of nature, uh, physics, science, uh, agriculture, botany, biology, uh, everything to do with the animals. I created the sheep, so I know a little bit about them. Uh, created man, 
uh, told man how to live, helped man when he didn't, and have been guiding sheep through this process for, oh, at least 6,000 years. That's my resume. And we don't trust him. No wonder they call us sheep, because we're stupid, right? We're really, really stupid. Um, I've told this story in here before, but my dad got tired of listening to sermons talking about sheep uh, when he was living in Shelbyville, and he decided that he was going to go buy some sheep and raise some sheep because he wanted to understand the Old Testament better. So he goes out and he buys these sheep, and he, he, he keeps them for like three months, right? Because they are the dumbest animals imaginable. It is ridiculous. They will do the exact opposite of what you want them to do in any given time. The exact opposite. Um, he actually got so angry at them that my mom had to stop him. He took a shotgun, and he was going to go into the field and just blow their brains out because he was so... I grew up in the South. This is just... It's a different culture, right? And I don't mean Chattanooga South. I mean, like... <clears throat> there's not a major highway for 10 or 20 miles around kind of south, right? Um, Mom had to stop him from murdering the sheep. And he wouldn't go, like, go sell them for meat or something. He's just tired of them existing because they, so, they were so stupid. They were ridiculous. You know, he had read the stories of the shepherd leads the sheep, right, and the sheep follow. Well, that don't happen for a long time, let me tell you. The sheep have to really know the shepherd well to trust the shepherd and follow and then he got it, right? Then it made sense. That you, one, you have to be an exceptionally good shepherd, and you have to have a lot of experience with the sheep. So this is not a job for a rookie. We don't have a rookie God. We have an experienced God. So I will fear no evil. So why will I fear no evil? <clears throat> for you are with me. And this is a shift. The pronouns shift here. Because David goes from talking about God to talking to God here, Right? He says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So your rod, uh, it's, a, it's a rod or a branch or an offshoot. Your blank is a club. You're like, club? Yeah. Ouch. Yeah. Your club. There it is right there, the spiritual two-by-four in the Old Testament. And your staff. This is a beautiful word for staff. It's support of every kind. Any type of support. That's what this word is used for. It's something you can lean on. It's something you can walk with. It's something you can protect something with. But the idea is that any type of support, they comfort or console me. Verse 5, you prepare. It means furnish. How many of you will get a home-cooked meal today? Anybody? Awesome. How many of you are jealous for those that are, have their hands up? Right. Okay. Um, a home-cooked meal. So who's, who makes the best home-cooked meal that you know of? Mama. Mama, right? Oh, Darla says no. Darla objects. Darla says Darla. Okay, that's awesome. <laughs> I love you, Darla. You're awesome. <laughs> so we've got this, this idea of a home-cooked meal, right? Did, did anybody have the job of setting the table when you were little? We have the job? I had that job, too. I could never remember which side of the, ta- which side of the plate the spork went on. It, it, just, it confused me every time. I wasn't sure. So, Yeah, it goes on the plate. That's pretty split the difference, right? So, so you, you set the table. And, and me, when I set the table, it looked completely different than when my mom set the table, right? Because I was just concerned about the existence of everything on the table that we needed. It was there. 
If it was piled in the middle, that's good enough. We can reach and get it, that's no problem. Mom wanted it perfect. She wanted everything lined up. The napkin had to be folded a certain way. Anybody have moms that had the napkin had to be folded a certain way? Nobody? You did? I, I can imagine so, yes. She made me line up all my calculus equations a certain way, too. That's right. Uh, Josh's mom was my high school calculus teacher, so it's fun stuff. Um, so the napkin had to be folded a certain way, and the, which, what goes on the napkin again? Obviously, didn't learn this very well. The fork goes, and the, does the knife go on there, too? Of course not. Of course the knife doesn't go on the napkin side, yes. So the fork goes on it, right? Well, the fork had to be in a specific spot on the napkin. That's all I remember. Every time she would go back behind me and correct it because she wanted the table to be set beautifully. Right? So think about a table that was set by God himself. Do you think it might be a pretty good table? Just, just maybe, perhaps, right? So he has, furnished, he has furnished this table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint. It literally means to make fat. We're like... My head with oil. I'm going to throw down on you here with a five-cent word. Here we go. Help me out, Lori. Unguent? Unguent? U-N-G-U-E-N-T? Did I stump her? Oh, she knew it. That gummit. There's no word that I've ever said in here that she didn't know. It's ridiculous. So it's a, it's a soothing preparation. It's the idea that it's an um, oily-based salve that holds medicine in place to fix you when you're injured. So you anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. It literally means my cup is saturated. And that, that's not what I would have thought the word would have meant, because I would have thought the word would have meant it runs over, right? But it literally means the cup itself is full and the cup itself is saturated. So when God brings opportunity... Sometimes he asks us to bring him a bowl or a bucket or a barrel to fill up. There's examples of this in the Old Testament. The, the widow's uh, jar of oil that didn't run out, right? Well, if she'd have brought him a pint jar, it wouldn't have run out. If she'd have brought him a gallon jug, it wouldn't have run out. If she'd have brought him a 55-gallon barrel, it wouldn't have run out. Um, when we were getting ready for Easter at Coolidge last year, uh, I remember Monica and I, would, we'd go out and we'd color the, you know, those big obnoxious thermometers that we had that kept everybody in the loop on how, many, how much candy we had coming in. It was awesome, right? You remember those? They were beautiful. They were beautiful. They were not obnoxious at all. Ooh, they were beautiful. <laughs> we would go out and color in them, uh, but we would fill it in. And I remember the night that we got to 100,000 pieces of candy, and I was just thrilled. I thought, this is the greatest thing ever. And it turned around, and I was just tickled pink. And there's Mr. Charles Alexander standing there. And he said, what are you grinning about? I said, we just got to 100,000 pieces of candy. His facial expression never changed. He said, uh, what did you pray for? I said, well, I prayed for 100,000 pieces of candy. Well, what are you surprised for? <laughs> do you want more than that? You should have prayed for more than that. That is exactly right, Mr. Charles. That's exactly right. Because we brought God a bucket that would hold 100,000 pieces of candy. And you know what he put in it? 140,000 pieces of candy. It was saturated. It was running over. It was ridiculous. You know why? Because you can't bring God a bucket too big. You cannot. He's just too big for the bucket. He won't fit in the bucket. 
got to put that on a t-shirt or something. God won't fit on the, in the bucket. My cup runs over. It is saturated. So all the stuff that I've talked about so far, I really like about Psalm 23. I really like. But verse 6 is the top of the food chain. It is as good as it gets. So surely, goodness and mercy. Mercy is the Hebrew word kesed, C-H-E-S-E-D. C-H-E-S-E-D, the Hebrew word kesed. That's not how you pronounce it because I don't want to spit on our visitors in the front here. It's chesed, all right? I turned this way, sorry, there we go, we're good. Um, It means goodness and faithfulness and kindness. Um, It's the Old Testament equivalent of grace. Shall follow me all the days of my life. Here's what follow me means. It means to be behind, to follow after, to pursue, to persecute, to run after, to put to flight, to chase, to dog, to attend closely along. Here's your blank. To harass. Is that beautiful or what? God is going to harass you with goodness and mercy if you are his child. He is going to harass you with it. He will not let you leave it. It will chase you down. Have you ever felt like God's love just chased you down and and just tackled you and wrestled you to the ground and it was like, I'm going to win right now, just let me win. Have you ever felt like that? Amy, you felt like that? Is there a reason you felt like that? Yeah. You want to give your testimony real quick? Have you shared that yet? I got scan results on Monday and I am now almost a year and a half cancer free. You cannot bring God a bucket too big. He will harass you with goodness and mercy. And you know what? If the cancer comes back and takes Amy, God will harass her with goodness and mercy through the entire thing. And he will harass her family with goodness and mercy through the entire thing. And he will not give up with goodness and mercy for the rest of our lives. And the cool thing is, when the life here is over, the harassment of goodness and mercy keeps going. It doesn't ever stop. And this is to the believer. This is to the Christian. This is not to the unbeliever. This is not to the pagan. If you are not a Christian, this, none of this applies to you. But this is kind of like God's benefit section. Because when you take a new job, they give you a little packet, right? This is your benefit information, right? He's like, oh, this is a really cool benefit. That's awesome. I get like a discount at Verizon. Woohoo! that's cool. That's nothing compared to being harassed with goodness and mercy the rest of my life. How awesome is that? Because I guarantee you, one day when I walk out of TVA for the last time, they will forget my sorry butt. They, <laughs> they will, ain't nobody coming and knocking on my door going to harass me with goodness and mercy. It is not happening, right? It is not going to happen. But God, doesn't matter where I'm at, is going to come and harass me with goodness and mercy. And that is just beautiful. That is overwhelming. He will never let you go. Is that cool or what? That is just, I, I can't get over this, right? I'm sorry. You can get over this. I'm sorry. All the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord, and the last line is forever. Forever and ever and ever. So what's the point, Jim? Well, the scripture we learned as children still applies. Right? Because for many of us, this would have been the first thing that we memorized about the Bible. Right? And, and Jesus will make it happen, whether this is our restoration, our protection, our comfort, or our harassment. He will make it happen. He will not quit on this. And number three, it gets better, but only with Jesus. So if your life sucks right now, um, and you don't have Jesus, it may not get better. 
I will be very, very blunt with you, very clear with you. It may not get better. It will actually get worse because the hope that you don't have will continue to spiral out of control. It will continue. But if you have Jesus, it will get better. I said, it will get better. It will get better, but only with Jesus. Only with Jesus. It does not work any other way than that. So what do we do with that? Well, the scripture we learned is children still applies, so keep memorizing. Because I still need Psalm 23 today at 36 years old after having been a Christian for 28 years. I still need Psalm 23. He's still harassing me with that. He's still chasing me down. He's still leading me through the valley. He's still holding my hand the whole way and going before me and showing me the things that he's already done a thousand times before with a billion other people. And that's okay. Because he cares about me too. He's not letting go. So let Jesus do his work and never quit on Jesus because he's not going to quit on us. Amen? Psalm 23. Who knew, right? It's good stuff. There's a reason we had to memorize that as kids because it's good stuff.